Will you uncover Tibet's most dangerous secret? You're a private investigator searching for the Lost Valley of Sealing Law, where the monks have learned the strange art of levitation. You get a tip that a man named Von Camp has valuable information for you, and you arrange a meeting with him. But as he starts talking, a knife flies through the window inches away from his head. If you jump out the window after the attacker, turn to page 38. If you decide to stay and help Von Camp, turn to page 107. Be on your guard. You could be machine gunned by a helicopter or pursued by ruthless smugglers. Or you could discover the priceless treasures of Genghis Khan and be rich forever. What happens next in the story? It all depends on the choices you make. How does the story end? Only you can find out. And the best part is you can keep reading and rereading until you've had not one, but many incredibly daring experiences. You're the star of the story. Choose from 22 possible endings. Choose Your Own Adventure, Book 36, The Secret Treasure of Tibet by Richard Brightfield, illustrated by Paul Granger. Welcome to Incredibly Daring, a podcast where we read vintage Choose Your Own Adventure books to each other and generally make poor decisions. I'm Jillian. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jason. And this is the secret treasure of Tibet. And you know what else it is? It's the end of an era. This is the last book illustrated by Paul Granger. Ever? Ever. Oh. What did he go to do after that? He died. Did he? I don't know. No. All right. And it was owned by Becky Blackman, and she got it in 1984 at Christmas. Thanks for contributing to our library. Warning, do not read this book straight through from beginning to end. These pages contain many different adventures you can have while searching for the uh, mysterious valley of Sealing Law. From time to time, as you read along, you will be asked to make a choice. Your choices may lead to success or disaster. Your adventures are a result of your choices. You are responsible because you choose. After you make a choice, follow the instructions to see what happens next. Think carefully before you make a move. Any choice could be your last, or it could lead you to the secret treasure of Tibet. Good luck. There's a little map. Mongolia, China, Tibet, Nepal, India. It's a very not detailed map at all. No, it really is not. Got a little Buddha head in there, though. Yeah. Mm. Got any Nepalese coin? You have just finished a correspondence course on how to be a private investigator. A fucking correspondence course, like really. Well, if you're not if you're not psychic, that's what you have to make do with. <laughs> While you're at home one day wondering what your first case will be, there's a soft knock at your front door. When you open it, you can see an old man standing there. Can I help you? You ask. May May I come in? He says. There's something I must ask you. You help the old man into a chair. He sits down with a heavy sigh. My name is Bertram Buckingham. I got your name from the referral service of your correspondence school. I have a job for you, one that will send you on an adventure beyond your wildest dreams, and all expenses paid, I might add. I haven't had much experience yet, you say, and that's perfect, Mr. Bu Buckingham interrupts. I need someone with a young, fresh mind. Sounds interesting. Tell me a little bit about the case, you say. What if I'm like a borderline idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Pulling a chair? Over next to Mr. Oh, okay. Sounds interesting. Tell me a little bit about your case, you say, pulling a chair over to Mr. Buckingham. It all goes back many, many years, to 1942, to be exact, during the Second World War, he says. 
I was in a British army then, stationed in northern India. I was put in charge of two Germans. They weren't Nazis, but we were holding them until the end of the war. One night, they escaped and headed north towards the Himalayans. Since they were on my charge, I followed them all the way through Nepal and to Tibet. I lost their trail in a blinding snowstorm, but stumbled into a valley called Silingla. In the midst of snow-covered mountains, it was an almost tropical oasis. Plants and flowers were everywhere, and the center of it was a perfect jewel of a monastery. There I saw an amazing sight, one that has haunted me ever since. What did you see, you asked Mr. Buckingham. The monks there could levitate themselves, you know, rise up off the ground and stay there, he answers. I saw it. They even tried to teach me how to levitate, but I still hadn't found the Germans, so I had to continue my search. <laughs> well, I guess dereliction of duty is the option. Yeah. So. But what's this got to do with today, you ask? I've told this story many times, particularly at my club. Hubert Crossley, another member and millionaire, has often teased me about it. Buckingham hesitates, looking uncomfortable. A month ago, in a weak moment, I bet my entire fortune against his. If by this time next year I can't scientifically prove that levitation is possible, then everything I own becomes his. And he has it in writing. Brilliant. Something tells you your first case isn't going to be easy. So where do I come in, you ask? Buckingham suddenly looks hopeful. You have to go to Tibet, find the Valley of Sealing Law, and either learn how to levitate yourself or bring back someone who can. I drew a map of Sealing Law's location, and I will give it to you if you agree to go. Why all the way to Tibet, you ask? I've read about spiritual groups here in the city who say they can practice levitation. They say they can levitate, replies Buckingham grimly, but they all fail in front of Crossley's scientific panel. Then why don't you go to Tibet, you ask? No, no, I'm old and tired. I'd never make it. That's why I need you. Still, it would save a lot of, lot of trouble if we could find someone closer to home, you offer. We'll give it a try if you want. Perhaps this will help. Buckingham hands you a newspaper clipping dated a few days earlier. There's a photo of a woman over a short article. Sylvia Morrison, a noted anthropologist, has just returned from a trip to India and the Himalayans where she has been studying the ph phenomenon of mental telepathy and levitation. If you will go to my house tomorrow, says Mr. Buckingham, I'll get- Oh, this is all a con. Mm. This is a con to get us alone in his house. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a map and a check to cover your expenses. And some candy out in my van, little boy. By the way, you might see Mr. Snide at the Museum of Natural History. He's the curator of the Tibetan collection. You shake hands with Mr. Buckingham and you show him to the door. I'm counting on you to help me, he says. If you decide to call Sylvia Morrison first, turn to page five. If you decide to go to the museum first, turn to page 68. Well, she's directly investigating stuff that we're supposed to be investigating. Yeah, so. I mean, that could be our whole case solved right there. I yeah. said we talked to her, yeah. Talk to Sylvia. First, you look up Sylvia Morrison's number in the phone book and call her. You introduce <laughs> yourself and ask her what she knows about levitation. That's a big subject, she replies. I have hundreds of reports on my files. Would you let me take a look at those files, you ask? I'd be glad to show them to you sometime, she says, but right now I'm packing for a trip and I don't. In that case, I'll be right over, you say, slamming the phone down. <laughs> you throw on your jacket and sprint out of the house. At the corner, you hail a cab and give the driver Sylvia Morrison's address. Halfway there, you notice that another car is following the cab. You wait and watch it for a while to be sure. Why would anyone be following you? Driver, you say, make a sharp right turn at the next corner. 
The cab driver turns. After a few seconds, the other car appears around the corner behind you. Should you keep going to Silvio Morrison's? Or should you have the cab make another sharp turn and stop so that you can jump out? If you decide to keep going in the cab, turn to page four. If you decide to jump out, page 20. I like the jumping out of the car. Yeah, we could do that. You pay the cab driver and tell him to pull around the next corner, wait for a second, and then leave as fast as possible. A minute later, after jumping out of the cab, you press yourself against the shadowy side of a large building. The cab zooms away, and the car following speeds after it. It's a dark blue limousine, one you won't forget. You set off towards Sylvia Morrison's apartment building, but half a block away you stop. Ahead directly across the street from Sylvia's building is a limousine that followed you. Carefully, you slip into the shadows. Crouching behind a parked van, you see two men with a woman between them make their way out of Sylvia's building towards the limousine. As they pass under the streetlight, you look at the woman. You recognize her at once from the picture in the paper. It's Sylvia Morrison, and she's in trouble. Her hands are tied behind her back, and the two men seem to be pushing her. Desperately, you try to think of what to do. If you rush out and try to save Sylvia, you could end up a prisoner too. At least you can get the limousine's license plate number. The two men hustle Sylvia into the car and slam the door shut. The limo pulls away. Quickly, you run towards it and start copying the license plate. There are three letters and four numbers. ULO, 74, but that's as far as you get. Something hits you in the back of the head and you lose consciousness. When you come to, you find yourself tied up in a dark room. Your head is still throbbing from the blow that knocked you out. For a few minutes, you just lie there, getting your thoughts together. What did your correspondence course say about freeing your hands when you were tied up? Now you remember. (laughs) Use a low steady pull with one hand. Fortunately, there is just enough play in the ropes to squeeze one hand out gradually. Finally, your right hand pulls free. You get your other hand loose and then untie your feet. You stand up shakily, rubbing the large bump on the back of your head. By now, your eyes are adjusted to the darkness. Far across the room, you see a faint, lighted line of the edge of a large door. You walk towards it, stumbling into large crates a few times. You feel around for a doorknob and are relieved to find your door unlocked. Cautiously, you open the door a crack and peek out into a wide, brightly lit hallway. No one seems to be in sight, so you slip out into the hall. Nearby to the left of the hallway rounds a corner. Far down at the other end, to the right, is a closed door that looks as if it might be an exit. There are a number of closed doors on either side of the hallway. If you decide to go to the right, turn to page 9. If you decide to go to the left and see what's around the corner, page 101. And the one to the right looks like an exit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of said we take the exit. I want to be hanging out here. Well, I guess there's a possibility that Sylvia, right, Sylvia could be in here too. Yeah. Do we care? I don't know. Bitch, you on your own? Yeah. I don't know. I'd say we should probably fight Sylvia. All right. As you turn the corner, you get to a stop. Five men are coming towards you. You try to jump back before you're seen, but you're not quick enough. You'll have to make a run for it. You tear down the hallway, but you are tackled just before you reach the end. You hit the ground with a thump and lose consciousness. When you awake, you find yourself in a large, elegant room. This must be some kind of mansion, you think. Still a little... be some kind of mansion. (laughs) Still a little wobbly, you stand up and find yourself facing a sharp-featured middle-aged man. So this is our young investigator, he says. Just what is all this about, you ask in a shaky voice. You want to know what all this is about? The man's voice is furious. Since you won't be leaving here for a while, if ever, I'll tell you exactly what you're meddling in. I am Hubert Crossley. I import, let's call it that, antique art treasures from the Orient. Just recently, I discovered that the finest ones come from a place called Sealing Law, somewhere in Tibet. Yet with all of my resources, I couldn't find its exact location. 
Then I remembered that old fool Buckingham at the club. He was always telling some wild levitation story set in a place called Ceiling Law. He even said he had a map showing its location. First, I tried to buy the map from him. He wouldn't sell it. So I made that silly bet to smoke him out. Today, I thought Buckingham had given the map to you. My men searched you while you were unconscious. Apparently, you don't have it. Not that that would do you any good now. Crossley's men take you down to the mansion's basement and lock you in a cell at the end of a long corridor. You will be there for a long time, at least until Crossley gets enough money and treasure to satisfy himself. And that could take forever. The end. Um, so, slide. There's also the exit. Yeah. I don't know if I want to go all the way back to Snide. Yeah, say exit. You go out into the hallway and turn right towards the door at the end. You've only taken a few steps when you hear voices coming from around the bend in the hallway behind you. Quickly, you try a couple of the doors along the side. They're all locked. Now what? Try one more, you think, before making a dash for the door at the far end. Whew. This one appears open. You slip into the room and gently ease the door shut. And just in time, you can hear several men searching in the room where you were tied up. I thought you said you had that young snoop tied up, one of them said. I did, Joe, answers another voice. I think this is the room. Fucking Joe. You think? You think? Joe exclaims. All right, we'll figure out what you did later. Right now, we've got to get the statue over to Crossley's place. Then you hear the men walking towards the room where you're hiding. You look around. In the dim light, the only thing that you see is a large oriental sculpture about five feet high and almost as wide at at the base on the other side of the room. It must be an idol, a statue of Buddha. You hurry over and duck behind it just as the door opens and throws a bright shaft of light into the room. That's it by the wall there. You recognize the voice as Joe's. Let's get the forklift over there. It looks heavy. As you crouch down behind the idol, you see that there's a large opening in the back of it, and it looks as if you could crawl inside. It might be worth a try. You also notice, however, that the large door of the room opens in. If you could get behind it before the other men get back, there's a good chance that you could hide there. If you get inside the idol, turn to page 7. If you decide to try to get behind the door, 78. Obviously, we have to go inside. Yeah, it seems like that's... The idol or behind the door? Inside the idol. Inside the idol. Trojan horse that shit. Quickly, you squeeze inside the hollow back of the idol. It's surprisingly roomy inside, as long as you sit cross-legged like the Buddha itself. You feel around the inside with your hand and brush some kind of lever. There's a swishing sound behind you, and the panel slips into place over the opening, sealing you inside. You're wondering how you'll ever get out of this thing when you feel a jolt. You just use the lever that you just pulled? I know, right? Then the statue begins to shake violently. Be careful there, Joe warns. That thing is valuable. I don't want any accidents. You are moving. As your eyes get used to the darkness inside the idol, you see two tiny pinpoints of light in front of you and above your head. You can look out the eyes. You ease yourself up so you can put your eye to one of them. You realize suddenly that your head is inside the statue's head and that the points of light must be pinholes inside the eyes. You remember that a pinhole can actually act as a lens in a camera, and sure enough, you can see the whole scene in front of you. You are now outside of the building and headed for the open back of a large truck. It's correspondence course. (laughs) There is another jolt as the idol is slid inside. There is darkness again as the doors of the truck are closed. The truck starts off and continues to move forward for about an hour, and then it stops. You hear the doors of the truck being opened again. Through the pinholes in the statue's head, you can see that you are outside some sort of mansion. Men in military uniforms, but without any insignia, are standing behind the truck. What is this all about? The idol with you inside is heaved on into the mansion. 
There you are taken upstairs to see what looks like a large conference room. You see one of the soldiers salute and leave the room. Two men in civilian clothes remain. So this is a statue I've been hearing so much about, Crossley, says the shorter man. That's right, Colonel Hemmer. Are, there gold, uh, are the gold objects still inside, asks Hemmer. Everything was removed at the warehouse, Crossley answers. Are you sure they are worth millions? At least, says Crossley, but that's chicken feed compared to what we'll get when we find the location of ceiling law. The door behind Crossley opens and a figure in a uniform comes in. The men at the airfield are ready for inspection, he says, saluting. The three men leave the room. You are tempted to get out of the statue now, but would it be safer to wait until it gets dark, especially since the mansion and the grounds seem to be overrun by soldiers? If you decide to get out of the statue now, turn to page 91. If you decide to wait until it gets dark, 29. Um, I mean, I guess waiting is the safer route. Yeah, that's what I would think. But waiting sometimes is certain death, too. Sure. In these books. But personally, I'd probably wait till dark. So. Yeah, I'm fine with that. You stay hidden in the statue. Luckily, you manage to doze off. Later, you wake up and look out. I hope you don't snore. For a moment, you think it's still daylight, but then you realize that the, br- the bright moonlight is streaming in through one of the windows in Crossley's conference room. You feel around for the lever that closed the panel behind you. When you find it and give it a tug, there's a click and a faint scraping sound as the panel opens. With some difficulty, you manage to climb back out of the statue. Both your legs are asleep and numb. You sit on the floor for a while, rubbing your cast to get circulation back. When you can stand up again, you walk over and look out the window. You're on the second floor of the mansion. Outside the window is a fairly wide ledge. Carefully, you climb out onto it. At the corner of the building, you see a drain pipe going down to the ground. All of the windows between you and the pipe look safely dark, so you start to work your way along the ledge toward it. Suddenly, you pass one of the windows and you hear a soft psst. You freeze on the ledge against the wall in the mansion. The face of a boy, 12 or 13 years old, appears at the window. My name is Jimmy. Jimmy Crossley, he whispers. Climb into my room. I can help you. You jump onto the windowsill and then drop into his room. Can you get me out of here, you ask in a low voice? I think so, Jimmy answers. I've helped other people. You'd never make it the way you were going. My father has guards with machine guns, Doberman attack dogs, and we'll have to wait until morning. Then I'll pretend you're a friend of mine and walk you out the front gate. Jimmy lends you a blanket and you spend the rest of the night dozing under his bed, just in case someone comes in during the night. Early the next morning, Jimmy gets up. I'll be back after breakfast, he whispers. When Jimmy returns, the two of you leave his room and head towards the wide front steps that lead to the mansion's front door. You and Jimmy are about halfway down the stairs when you see Mr. Crossley approaching. Crossley, lost in thought, goes right past the two of you. He doesn't even say good morning to Jimmy, but as you reach the bottom of the stairs, he calls down. Just a moment there. I'd like to have a word with you. Come up here, will you? Mr. Crossley calls to you, adding, Jimmy, wait down there. Jimmy gives a I-don't-know-what-this-is-about shrug with his shoulders as you start back up the stairs. When you get to the top, Mr. Crossley motions for you to follow and leads you down the hallway to a small office. Sit down for a moment, he says. He goes to the wall and pulls down a large map. Do you know anything about this part of the world? Crossley asks, sweeping his hand over India and the Himalayans. I'm taking Jimmy on a month's study tour of the region. It just occurred to me that it might be highly desirable to bring one of his friends along so he doesn't get lonely. We're leaving tomorrow, and if you're interested, that's kind of short notice, you say. I know it is, says Mr. Crossley, but I'm confident that we can work out the details if you want to go. If you decide to go with Jimmy, turn to page 11. If you decide not to go, turn to page 73. Yeah, go with him. Yeah, go. Go where you want to go anyway. I'd love to go to India, you say, but I have to get home in a hurry and start packing. 
Don't worry about that, says Mr. Crossley. I'm sure we can furnish you with whatever you need on the trip. Suddenly, there is a commotion outside. Mr. Crossley moves quickly to the window. While his attention is on whatever's going on in the driveway, you take a close look at the map. There is a large circle penciled on the upper right part of Tibet, and next to it written, Ceiling law somewhere in this area. Then before Crossley can turn back around, you are at the window beside him. Below in the driveway, large, large crates are being carried out of the mansion and loaded into several army-type trucks. Ah, extra supplies for the trip, says Mr. Crossley as he steers you away from the window and presses a button on the desk. Almost immediately after Cro uh, Crossley presses the button, a tall man wearing a neatly wound green turban enters. This is Narak Singh, one of my servants, says Crossley. He will see to your needs and drive you to the airport. You will spend the night at the airport hotel. Jimmy will meet you at the terminal. We leave early in the morning. Singh drives you to your apartment where you pack a suitcase and get your passport. Singh, however, doesn't let you out of his sight. Two of Crossley's men in civilian clothes go along for the ride. You spend the night at the airport hotel. The next morning, you get your things together and flanked by Crossley's men head towards the boarding gate of Air India flight. The airport is crowded, but not crowded enough to help you if you decide to make a break for it. You see Jimmy across the terminal floor. You are about halfway to Jimmy when a large group of vacationers crosses in front of you. You recognize one of them. It's Inspector Elroy, a good friend of your family, and the one who encouraged you be to become a private investigator. This may be your last chance to get away from Crossley's men if you want to. If you decide to use a chance to get away, turn to 106. If you decide to keep playing along with Crossley, 34. Yeah, the whole point is to keep going. Yeah, we're supposed to go to Tibet. Yeah. So let's go. Although you're tempted to ask Elroy for help, you mm -hmm. wanna you wanna find out more about Crossley. There's more to his interest in sealing law than the bet with Buckingham. You wave to Inspector Elroy and keep going to the gate. Air India Flight 10 with you aboard takes off. Fortunately, you get to sit with Jimmy, although Singh is sitting directly behind you and more of Crossley's henchmen are just outside the aisle. It is to be a long flight. You won't get to Delhi until the next morning. You and Jimmy talk about sports until you're sure that Singh and the others have lost interest in your conversation. Have you ever heard your father mention a place called Ceiling Law, you whisper? Ah, yes, quite often, Jimmy answers. Has he ever said anything about levitation? No, I don't think I've ever heard. Jimmy stops mid-sentence as you both look up. Singh is bending over you, a fierce expression on his face. Jimmy will sit in the other seat, Singh orders. I will sit here. Reluctantly, Jimmy moves. You and Singh sit without speaking for a while. Finally, you break the silence. Mr. Crossley seems to have his own private army, you start. Singh doesn't answer. I guess he feels that he needs a lot of protection with all his money and... Quiet, Singh interrupts. I do not think you are what you pretend to be. Really? You try to sound bored? What do you think I am? That I cannot say as yet. But before this trip is over, I will find out. As soon as a plane lands in Delhi, you are surrounded by Crossley's men again. You all pass through customs, and before you know it, you're in another limousine and threading through the crowded streets of Delhi. The limo stops in front of a large white marble building. Singh ushers you inside. We will be here for a few days, he explains. Then we will go north to the mountains. You will have no need to leave this house. With that, Singh pushes you into a room. You don't have to try the, do the doorknob to know that you're locked in. There is a large couch in the corner. You lay down and are asleep almost immediately. When you wake, it is dark. Immediately, you sense that there's someone else in the room. It takes you a few seconds to recognize Singh. We must talk very softly, he whispers. Careful, I'm still not sure if I can trust you. If you can trust me, you whisper back. 
Yes, Singh says. I too am not what I seem. I'm actually an agent for the international police. Crossley is an evil man and must be stopped. But now I must know why you're here. If you decide to tell Singh the truth, turn to page 36. If you decide to stick to your story, 112. Singh like a fucking canary. Yeah, tell me the truth. Because we're either going to get shot or go on an adventure. He said he's an international cop. Just because he said it doesn't mean it's true. True. What was the other option? Tell him what? If you decide to stick to your story, turn to page 112. All right, fine. Okay, you say to Singh. I'll tell you... I'll tell you all I know, which isn't much. First, you tell Singh about the levitation bet and the map the that Mr. Thing that's ever been said. It's not like we're a psychic detective over here. We're not. We're a, a correspondence, correspondence course detective. First, you tell Singh about the levitation bet and the map that Mr. Buckingham was going to give you. You also tell him what you overheard in Crossley's conference room. It seems to me that what's important is the location of ceiling law. The matter of levitation, true or not, is just a smokescreen, says Singh. Crossley has been searching for ceiling law for over a year. He has raised a small army to overpower it when he finds its exact location. He has a large transport plane hidden in the foothills of the Himalayans, ready to carry his paratroopers. Then levitation really has nothing to do with this whole thing, you say. The bet was just how to make Buckingham reveal his map or somehow lead Crossley to ceiling law. Exactly. I must stay in the building and keep a close watch on what's going on. But you can contact a source I know of here in Delhi. Sure, you say, if I can get out of here. That's easy, says Singh. There's a secret passage out of the chamber. Come, we must hurry. You follow Singh through a paneled wall and then down a spiral staircase and finally through a long passageway that leads to the back of a carpet shop. So here are some rupees in the address of, a, of the German, says Singh, handing you an envelope. The German? Yes, says Singh. His name is Otto von Kamp. If my guess is correct, he's one of the Germans that you and your Mr. Buckingham followed into Tibet. He may not be able to help find uh, ceiling law before Crossley does, but good luck. Singh vanishes into back into the passageway. The street outside is filled with a swirling mob of people. You are about to leave, but there by the door is someone you recognize. Jimmy, you shout over the street noise. Jimmy runs towards you. Quick, he says. Two of my father's men are after me. I just gave them the slip. You launch into the mob on the street, pulling Jimmy along with you. After a few blocks, you actually manage to find a taxi cab and give the, the driver Von Kamp's address. Otto Van Camp lives on the ground floor of a new housing project. You and Jimmy walk to the far end of the building and knock on his door. There's no answer. You knock again. Still no answer. You're about to give up when the door opens and a short, bald, heavy-step man opens the door partway. There's a gun in his hand, pointed straight at you. What do you want, he demands. You explain that you are looking for information about ceiling law and that you will gladly pay him for it. You seem to be honest. Come in and sorry about the gun, he says, putting it away sheepishly. Sheepishly. I'm a little nervous today. So many people want to know about ceiling law. Who else has asked about it, you say? A man was here only a couple of hours ago, answered Van, Van Camp. I think his name was Himmer. He wanted to know exactly where it was. Did you tell him, Jimmy asks? I'm not telling anyone, says Von Camp, starting to pace back and forth in front of the window. I have sworn never to tell. About what, you ask? About, Von Camp starts to say. But before he can finish, there is a swoosh in the air outside. Von Camp gives a cry as a knife embeds itself in the window frame inches away from his head. You manage to catch him as he faints. If you jump out the window and go after the attacker, turn to page 38. If you try to revive Mr. Von Camp, turn to 107. Say revive Von Camp. Sure. 
and gently you shake Von Camp. He groans and stirs. Meanwhile, Jimmy closes the window and checks the front door to make sure it's locked. Only just in time. A moment later, there's a pounding on the door. Luckily, Von Camp is coming around. Is there any way out of here besides the front door, you ask? I'm afraid not, Van Von Camp answers. No, wait. There's a ventilation shaft in the back with a ladder up up to the roof. Von Camp jumps to his feet and leads the way up to the shaft. Quickly, he pulls the grill off the wall and squeezes inside. You and Jimmy follow. You climb the three stories to the roof. At the other end of the building, whispers Von Camp, there's an outside stairwell to the ground. Back on the ground, Von Camp leads you through a narrow alley to a beat-up old van. You all jump in, and Von Camp pulls out into the congested traffic. Where are we going, Jimmy asks. Well, first, we're going to get out of the city and head north. Eventually, we'll reach Ceiling Law. For the next few days, you just keep riding, living, and sleeping in the back of the van. The broad, dusty plain gradually gives away to rolling hills. I'm taking a back road, says Von Camp. It'll be easier to get across the border that way. Across the border, you ask? Yes, says Von Camp, into Nepal. There's a small airfield run by a friend of mine not far from the border. We may be able to get to Sealing Law the easy way. Then you know where it is, asks Jimmy. Van Camp pulls out a folded piece of paper from his shirt pocket. It's brown with age and crumbling around the edges. You recognize it at once. Here is the map I've saved all these years. The top half of it, anyways. Someone else years ago got the bottom half, and this is the half that shows the location of Sealing Law. At an out-of-the-way border post, Von Camp shows the guard some sort of pass, and the van is waved through. The next day, Von Camp pulls alongside a broad field where a twin-engine plane is parked. That's a Fulker 27, says Von Camp, the most reliable plane ever built. A man Von Camp's age strides across the field. Kurt, Von Camp shouts. The two men hug each other for a moment. What brings you here, old friend? Kurt asks. True love. Yes. Mm-hmm. I need to go into the mountains, says Von Camp. I must get to the monastery of Sealing Law. Kurt frowns. I'll be glad to help you, but I must tell you that flying to the north is very rough and quite dangerous this time of year. It's vital that I get there, says Von Camp. I must warn them of danger. All right, my friend. If you really must go, I will take you. Ah, but I have another idea. My Jeep is like a mechanized mountain goat. It's over there and you are welcome to take it. It will be dangerous either way, says Von Camp. I cannot decide on my own. Perhaps we should take a vote. If you vote to go by plane, turn to 111. If you vote to go by Jeep, 61. Plane. Plane. Kurt's plane dashes down a short runway and pulls sharply into the air. You, Jimmy, and Von Camp hold your breath as the plane narrowly clears the treetops. Then Kurt banks the plane towards the north. Soon you see jagged snow-peaked mountains in the distance. Before you know it, you are flying between them. The snow glistens white around you. The air starts to get bumpy and a few dark clouds appear ahead. It's going to be rough flying from now on, warns Kurt, and you'll have to give me directions from here. Von Camp pulls out the map and tries to get his bearings from the nearby peaks. It shouldn't be too far, he says. We're well into Tibet. According to the map, we should be heading right for the monastery. However, you fly on for what seems like a long time. Can't go much further, Kurt says. My gas is at the point of no return. Soon there'll just be enough fuel for a return flight. It should be somewhere just ahead, says Von Camp, peering at his map and then out the window. You look out too, but you can't see anything except for mountains and snow. Then you think you see a tiny patch of green up ahead, but you're not sure. Suddenly, both engines of the plane start to sputter and then die completely. I don't understand it, exclaims Kurt. We have enough fuel. I can't seem to get the engines started again. It looks like we're going down. Kurt is an experienced mountain pilot. He somehow manages to miss the side of a nearby mountain and then skid the plane on the only level piece of snow. 
in that part of Tibet. The plane lands with a jarring crunch on the side of a huge snowbank. You all climb out, someone dazed. What do we do now? Not much we can do, says Kurt, except he stops speaking and looks off across the snow, shielding his eyes from the glare. Is that a line of monks walking towards us, or am I already coming down with mountain sickness? You're high. Mountain sickness. They're from the monastery at Ceiling Law. Oh, that wasn't a choice. <laughs> They're from the monastery at Ceiling Law, shouts Von Camp. I don't believe this, Jimmy says, but Von Camp is right. The monks lead you through a mountain pass to the warm green valley of Ceiling Law. It feels as if you've just stepped into summer. You know you've never seen a place this beautiful. The abbot greets you, and you warn him about Crossley and his plans to invade the monastery. There is no danger, the abbot says. Have you ever heard of the Tibetan Book of Dead? It describes the visions you see, hallucinations as you pass from death to rebirth. Some of these hallucinations are images of horrible demons. These same images protect the monastery. Though they only exist in the mind, they seem real enough to anyone who tries to attack us. You're not sure you understand this, or would believe it if you did, so you changed the subject. Did Buckingham know about the treasure? No, he thought levitation treasure was enough, the abbot replies. Levitation now, treasure? Yeah. Okay. Now let me show you what you've come so far to see. The abbot leads the four of you through the ceiling law's main temple and then down a narrow stone stairway. The stairs seem to go on forever, winding deep beneath the earth. Finally, you emerge in a huge cavern. The abbot lights a torch and holds it overhead. Suddenly, thousands of shining gold objects, statues, bowls, thrones, bracelets covered with gems flash in the light. What you see here is only a small part of the treasure of Genghis Khan, the abbot says softly. This cavern goes on for miles. You, Jimmy, Von Camp, and Kurt remain at the monastery for several weeks. You're having a great time, but finally you all agree that it's time to return home. I'm afraid that's impossible, the abbot tells you. Though we are protected, it's best that the outside world forget about sealing law. We wouldn't try to take the treasure, Jimmy says. Buckingham never even saw the treasure, the abbot replies, yet he brought great danger to many by simply talking about the monastery. We can allow no one to leave. It's a good thing you like sealing law. You're going to be there for a long, long time. The end. <laughs> All right. Well, as far as Richard Brayfield goes, that's probably his best book so far. Yeah. But um, I don't know. It's very windy. We got a fairly decent ending, I guess, even though we're trapped there yeah, for forever. Yeah, we're functionally prisoners but, at this point. But so maybe we'll learn how to levitate. So did we actually even see anybody levitate? No. Um, I guess I'd recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the story itself hooked you enough, kept you wanting to know what what would happen if you chose this or that option. So. And I like the double agent sing in there too. So. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that Jimmy might be a double agent only in reverse. Like he's pretending to be your friend. Uh, he's just trying to get information for his dad. Yeah. But that never came about. It took forever. <laughs> I have gray fucking hair now. We all have gray hair. Now. <laughs> we had gray hair when we got here. So is that a non-recommendation? I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Uh, well, wrap up the episode then, I guess. All right. Well, if you want more of this, go to cyoa.com. And if you really love the podcast, you can go to incrediblydaring.com or you can tweet us 
tweet us, YouTube us. Tell your mom. Little bit of, uh, I don't know, I guess exciting information. If you are listening to this podcast on the day that comes out, then at the end of the week, we will have a bonus episode because it will be our one year anniversary. So we will have an episode in which we discuss the highs and lows of the podcast and maybe talk a little bit about the Choose Your Own Adventure board game. Yeah. So that will be something to look forward to. Tune in next time. My kids are damn addicted to that freaking game now. I'm kind of bummed about it. They actually keep kicking my ass at it. <laughs> it's not competitive. It is very competitive. Everything is competitive. Okay. Well, let's save that for the next episode then. I'm Jillian. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jason. Bye.